Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. Listeners have asked us to provide pointers to some of the resources we talk about on the show. We now have links to books and articles referenced in recent podcasts that are available on our website. We also offer full transcripts. Go to jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. Today's guests are Bill Perry, Secretary of Defense in the Clinton administration, and he's also had a distinguished career in business, academia, and the civil service. Mr. Perry is a member of the National Academy of Engineering and a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and he was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 1998. His co-author and co-guest today is Tom Kalina, Policy Director at the Plowshares Fund, And the Plowshares Fund, something I didn't know about, but I'm glad I know about it now, states its mission as help make the world more safe and secure by funding organizations and people who promote the elimination of nuclear weapons, prevent the emergence of new nuclear states, and build regional peace. Together, they've written a new book, The Button, about the risks of nuclear war and nuclear weapons that many of us have almost forgotten are still out there. Welcome, Bill and Tom. Thanks, Jim. Great to be here. Yeah, it's great to talk about this topic. You know, this amnesia about the bomb is real. You know, I'm going to give a little example about myself. You know, I grew up in a close-in suburb of D.C. We figured we were seven miles as a crow flies from the White House. I was in fourth grade during the Cuban Missile Crisis and still recall the duck and cover drills. That's something those of us who were around at that time in that place will likely never forget. And I was quite interested in the topic of nuclear war. I think part of it coming from my hobby of playing war games, the old Avalon Hill war games that me and my friends played from the time I was 10 years old. By the age of 12, I'd read Herman Kahn's two books, Thinking About the Unthinkable, and even that fat old tome on thermonuclear war. You know, I was one of those nuclear nerds that could tell you that our ICBM force consisted of a thousand Minutemen and 54 Titans. How about that? I could even tell you that the Titans had 20 megaton city buster warheads. And I even visited a decommissioned Titan launch silo and command center outside of Tucson, which, by the way, I'd strongly recommend as an interesting tourist attraction should you be in the area. I even knew we had 41 Poseidon subs later traded in for, what was it, 18 or 20 Tridents. So I was a nuclear war nerd, but even I, more or less, had forgotten that these things were out there until I read your book. Isn't that interesting? It's fascinating and not surprising, Jim. I think we kind of came at this uh, for exactly that reason, that, that we perceive, as you do, that people have largely forgotten about nuclear weapons and the nuclear threat. And so really our effort here is to try to remind people that although the Cold War went away uh, 30 years ago and the weapons have declined in number, they're still there. The policies that make them dangerous are still in place. And so we need to bring some new attention to these issues to try to make them safer yet. Jim, not only the nuclear weapons still there, but in my judgment and Tom's judgment, the danger of a nuclear catastrophe today is actually higher than it was during the Cold War, higher than at the time you were ducking under desk. And that is, adds a real note of danger to the situation. That's really motivated Tom and me on an education program, which this book is a part. 
And actually, it makes sense. You know, as a former corporate executive, I know that what you pay attention to, your organizations tend to do pretty well. But I expect if nuclear weapons are, you know, not in anybody's front and center of attention, well, obviously they are of the people who run the programs, it's quite possible that the operations aren't nearly as first class as they were during the Cold War, which by itself raises risks. And we'll talk later about, shall we say, personnel risks associated with the current epoch. Before we get into those risks, though, let's maybe inform our audience a little bit about where we stand today. You know, I talked about the 1,000 Minutemen and the 54 Titans and the 41 Poseidons and all that stuff. What do our strategic nuclear forces look like today? Well, just to give a brief overview, both the United States and Russia are abiding by something called the New START Treaty. This was negotiated between the United States and Russia during the Obama administration. And it limits both sides to about 1,550 strategic deployed nuclear weapons. And by that, I mean the ones that are out uh, in service on a day-to-day basis. So that's 1,550. But there are other ones. There are other ones that are not counted uh, by that treaty that are in storage uh, and held in reserve. So we would say there's about, on each side, about 4,000 nuclear weapons still today with another 2,000 or so uh, in, in reserve or, or in queue for retirement. And that's a long way from the Cold War, where both sides had in excess of 30,000 nuclear weapons. So we've come a long way. But from our perspective, uh, it only takes a few hundred to destroy the world. And we have real dangers of accidental launch that could result in nuclear use. So we have we have some distance yet to go. Yep. And then we should also note that there are a lot more nuclear powers these days than there were during the height of the Cold War, at least. You know, we had UK and France back in those days and China, but now we have Israel and India and Pakistan. And a source of mine swears that Switzerland has had nuclear weapons since 1962. I don't know if that's true or not, but he swears it. And unless they're crazy, the Japanese and Taiwanese likely have quickly assembled nuclear kits. So we live in a multipolar nuclear world where the game theory in a crisis could get pretty damn complicated. Now, the other thing that you brought up in your book, which I think, you know, I suppose I knew this, but again, I had allowed it to slip into the background, is that the president of the United States remains the sole command authority for our nuclear weapons. Could you all comment upon that a little bit? This is one of the most dangerous aspects of our current situation. The president and the president alone can order a nuclear strike. He can do it for any reason or with no reason. He can consult with others, but he does not need to. He can consider for two hours. He can consider for two minutes. In any event, if he decides to launch, it's gone. There's no legal way of stopping him from doing that. This is, I think, a very dangerous situation, particularly since our forces are deployed so that it can be quickly launched. In other words, if the president decides to launch a nuclear weapon, they can be off in the air in a matter of a few minutes. And then if he changes his mind or if he gets decides the information he had was wrong, there's no way of calling them back. They're on the way. You cannot call them back. You cannot destroy them in flight. You will have started a nuclear war. Yeah, and I think that's really important for people to realize, you know, again, as a somewhat of a, at least a hobbyist level student, I knew there was no callback button for the obvious reason, right? That'd be an awful valuable target for somebody to try to capture. 
but we should realize that if the balloon ever goes up, there's no calling it back, which means that we have to think through these policies because the risks are really high. You also point out in your book that the culture of the Air Force and presumably the Navy as well kind of reinforce this. You talk about an officer Herring, who during his training in the Air Force as a nuclear missile launch officer, asked his instructors, how can I be certain that any launch order I receive comes from a sane president? Rather than provide an answer to his questions, the Air Force simply fired him. That's right, Jim. I mean, I think in the Air Force, there's an assumption that rules and orders shall be followed. So I know that some people think that if a president, say President Trump, were to make an order of nuclear launch uh, that seemed unreasonable, that there might be someone in the military chain of command that would choose not to follow that order. To me, that is not reassuring at all. Uh, one, because the, the military culture is to follow orders. But two, you know, that shouldn't be the insurance policy that that we have for ourselves. If we don't feel that a president is capable or qualified to make a launch decision all by himself, uh, then we need to change the policy. And we're certainly using President Trump here um, to highlight the dangers of sole authority, but we don't want to single him out. He's not the only one. There have been other presidents, for example, President Nixon, who was known to be drinking very heavily at the end of his term, uh, and as well as President Reagan, uh, who was known to have dementia at the end of his term, and even President Kennedy, who was known to be uh, taking heavy pain medications at certain times. So certain presidents at certain times have shown behaviors that we would think uh, would give us cause for concern about giving this much authority to one person. And this is a great example of a policy that should have changed at the end of the Cold War, uh, that is 30 years ago. But we've never really taken the time to sit down and say, you know, we had all these policies like sole presidential authority in the Cold War, uh, which may or may not have made sense then, but they certainly don't make sense now. Uh, we're in a very different day. The risks are very different. The dangers are very different. Why do we still have these policies? Well, primarily because we've never taken the time to go back and look at them. Uh, and it's it's high time that we did because the risks are just too great. Yeah. And I would also add, as people listen to the show know, I often describe myself as a Madisonian, as in James Madison, the chief architect of our constitution. And what I loved about him was despite being a revolutionary, unlike most revolutionaries, he was a very cynical guy. He knew that human nature was weak and variable and inevitably we would elect somebody not suitable for the job. In fact, in your book, you quote General Maxwell Taylor, as to those dangers arising from irrational American president, the only protection is not to elect one. Well, James Madison would say, it's inevitable that we will elect one. So it seems to me amazingly irresponsible that we still have a command and control system based on the hypothesis that we won't elect one. You know, again, just from an American history of constitutional theory perspective. And, and Jim, since you raised the Constitution, let me just say that you know the Constitution says that Congress shall declare war, uh, not the president. And clearly, if the president uses nuclear weapons first on his own authority without consulting Congress, we would say that is the ultimate declaration of war. So we see presidential sole authority as unconstitutional. Uh, as well as as extremely dangerous, and, and for both reasons, would like to see it fixed. 
Yep. And you mentioned in passing something that I noticed in your book. And I, again, vaguely recall this, but again, it's not front and center. This nuclear amnesia is a real thing that I hope your book wakes people up from. And that is the United States has not yet renounced first use of nuclear weapons. You know, Obama considered doing so, but he never did. Why is that? And should we renounce first use? The answer to the second question is yes. The first question, every administration when it comes into office prepares what's called a nuclear posture review in which it thinks through, reconsiders, and delivers its nuclear policy. One of those, every new administration has considered no first use. And when I was Secretary of Defense from the Clinton administration, we had a very serious consideration of it, and we were close to deciding it. In our case, the tipping factor against doing it was that two of our allies, two of the people to whom we provided what's called extended deterrence, objected. They felt that that would weaken the guarantee we'd made to them that we will come to their aid if they're attacked. So for whatever reason, it has been considered by each administration, and each time it has been rejected. In the case of the Clinton administration and the Obama administration, it was a very close call. Now, there'll be a new opportunity, perhaps in January, for the president then to reconsider. He'll have to be, go through their nuclear posture review at a very appropriate time, this time to make the right decision and to decide in favor of having a no first use. I might say it's not just a matter of declaring no first use. For it to have any meaning, you have to change your policies and your, and your procedures to make that evident that you're not going to use your weapons first. Uh, for one thing, having our, <clears throat> our forces deployed so they can be launched in a few minutes is not consistent with the no first use. Yes, and also having a single command authority weakens, you know, the belief and the credibility of that claim as well. You know, if it had to be, you know, the president and two congressional leaders, that would make the statement more credible, it would seem to me. Exactly. Jim, can I just add a word here? Absolutely. On no first use. I mean, it's a real paradox of history that we still have the U.S. possibility of the first use of nuclear weapons. Um, because... It's hard to imagine a president ever exercising that authority. The only time the United States used nuclear weapons first, of course, was was you know World War II in Japan and Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Uh, no president has used nuclear weapons since, and there's a good reason for this: is their presidents really sort of just are repelled by the notion of nuclear use, and particularly first use. Uh, you know, any first use of nuclear weapons, particularly against another nuclear weapons state, would bring destruction upon the United States. Uh, and for the president who would unleash that, you know, create a reputation for them in the history books that they certainly don't want to be remembered for. So from our perspective, we can't imagine a rational president using nuclear weapons first. So then the question is, why do presidents not get rid of this Authority. Well, part of it is that you know presidents don't like to give up any authority that they have. Uh, but in this case, I would say it has a lot to do with the fact that presidents haven't been willing to spend the political capital because it would be a heavy lift uh, to make that policy announcement uh, and then go out and seek American and international support for that. A president would have to spend some time doing it, would have to spend some political capital getting it done. It's one of the reasons why President Obama considered it 
and then turned away. It wasn't because he didn't believe in no first use. It was because he wanted to spend his time doing other things and it was going to be something that was hard to do. So this is part of the reason why we feel we need American public support for these policies and that presidents, even if they want to do the right thing, like I believe President Obama did, uh, they still need the public to push them to do it because there's always some competing need, some competing agenda uh, the presidents have to deal with that at the last minute could convince them not to go that route. It hasn't historically been Israel that has been the ally that is most concerned about us relinquishing first use? In my personal experience, the, the, the countries that protested when we were considering no first use were Japan and Germany. If Israel was doing it, they were doing it president to president, that it, it was not coming through the system. But both the Japanese and the Germans sent representatives to our meetings where, where, where we were considering the posture view and, and argued against it. Just in the Obama administration, it was reported that, that Japan, uh, again, was one of the main countries raising concerns when the Obama administration was considering no first use. Yeah, I suppose that makes sort of sense. You could vaguely imagine Japan being under a massive conventional attack by China and asking the U.S. to use nukes as a final defense. But it's a little far-fetched. But at least it's not absurd. Germany, it just seems absurd, right? Well, I mean, again, you know, I think it doesn't make a lot of sense to us why allies are concerned about the United States giving up the right of first use. Uh, because what we have is an extended deterrent relationship or agreement. In other words, the United States says, you know, if you don't build nuclear weapons uh, and you're in a major crisis situation, uh, we will come to your defense. That isn't a commitment to use nuclear weapons first in your defense. It's a commitment to come to your aid potentially in a conventional uh, weapons way or potentially uh, to use a nuclear threat of retaliation if our allies are attacked with nuclear weapons. But nowhere in there is a promise for the first use of nuclear weapons. And I frankly can't imagine that our allies would consider a threat to use nuclear weapons first as even credible or that they would want it because then we would be introducing nuclear weapons into their region uh, first and, and therefore escalating what could then turn out to be a broad widespread nuclear war. And that makes good sense. Even if it didn't become widespread, I mean, if you're Germany, do you really want nukes landing on your territory? I don't think so. Now, you know, first use is certainly a bad thing, but let's now get on to the one that's really scary. And, you know, as a person who's played quite a bit with game theory and simulations of prisoner's dilemma and things of this sort, as I focused on this, my hair stood up on the back of my neck, and that is the danger of launch on warning. Could you explain to our audience what that is and to what degree does that potential still exist today? It's, it still exists today. Launch on warning means that if a command system detects a launch underway, against us, then their concern is that that launch will be undoubtedly directed at our ICBMs in their silos. And their thought was, we want to launch our ICBMs before this lands. Now, considering the flight time of a missile coming from, say, Russia to the United States, there's not much time to do that. And from the time the missile was launched at the time they detect it, uh, can be five, six, seven minutes. 
um, to the time that they actually get the word through, the command through to the president, the orders through to the president, then that can be another couple of minutes. And so it comes down to the president will have about five, six, seven minutes to decide to launch once he gets this warning. So launch on warning means if he gets a warning, then an attack on the United States is underway, then he's going to launch his missiles in a few minutes so that they will not be destroyed in their silos. That's, that's, that's the thesis. It assumes, it assumes that Russia is launching a surprise attack against the United States specifically for the purpose of taking out our ICBMs. And the, this is to thwart that. Now, the assumption, I think, is, is insane. Uh, there's no way I can believe that Russia would see any, any advantage of that. If they did it, uh, it would surely lead to their own destruction. I've met many Russians in my time, including all of the leaders of Russia. And one thing, I, two things I can say with great confidence. At first, is the Russians are not stupid. And secondly, the Russians are not suicidal. Therefore, they're not going to be doing that. So we have a policy that's based on really an incredible assumption, namely that the Russians are going to conduct a surprise attack on our ICBM sites. You know, the, the argument that that's irrational, it's, you know, I agree with it. And the bolt from the blue theory has never struck me as likely, at least, you know, as a true bolt from the blue. However, if we go back and look at some of our Cold War history, you know, thinking particularly at Archer Abel in 1983, you know, in what appeared to the Russians, at least, to be a crisis, which actually wasn't a crisis, but these old feeble guys thought it was a crisis. Uh, I'm not entirely sure that in 1983, if the ball had bounced a little differently, they might have come to such a decision that, you know, sort of a preemptive strike rather than losing their capabilities. I mean, in a crisis, people can make strange decisions. You know, I remind people of July 1914. That was the argument made during the Cold War, and perhaps it made some sense then. Even if it made sense then, it certainly does not make sense today. And the second point is that even if you believe there's some remote likelihood of Russia making a surprise attack against us, and you say that's something we have to consider, the provisions we make for dealing with that put us in a position where we are highly vulnerable to launching by mistake. And so you have to weigh which of these two dangers is more realistic? The danger that Russia is going to make a surprise attack on us or the danger that because of the policies we've set up, our launch on warning, our quick launch policy, that we're going to have blunder into a nuclear war. We're going to have a launch by accident. Yeah, that's, of course, the key point that you guys make later in the book, which we'll get to, that, okay, what are the risks of some real crisis? And again, post-Cold War, probably small, but all the risk of error is still there, right? You know, one of the things we did with the book is is we we put in a preface where we tried to lay out what we saw as the doomsday scenario uh, of of things that could happen with our existing policies, um, and that is that there could be uh, a cyber attack, right? And most people don't realize that our nuclear weapon systems, command and control systems, are networked, are based on computers, and are vulnerable to cyber attack. So imagine for a moment that that there was a cyber attack by some adversary uh, who uh, manipulated our early warning systems to show that there was a nuclear attack underway against the United States um, from Russia. And the president would be given just five minutes to decide um, whether to launch a nuclear response or not. 
um, and that the pressure to launch a response is increased by the fact that we have land-based ballistic missiles, ICBMs, uh, that are in the ground vulnerable to attack. Uh, and so the advisors might say, look, Mr. President, if you don't launch within the next three minutes, um, we are going to lose our, our land-based ballistic missiles. And this is the use them or lose them scenario that increases the pressure on the president to make a decision to launch. But of course, realize back to the launch on warning posture that we were discussing before, if the president decides to launch, that would be before the incoming attack, if it's real, would have landed. And so the president wouldn't know at that point whether the attack is false or real. And one of the main things we want to get across in the book is that if there is an alarm of a possible attack, the president, because of uh, the possibility of false alarms, which we've had before, uh, or cyber attacks on our command and control system, the president really has to assume that any warning of attack is false until proven otherwise. Uh, and the president cannot rationally launch a retaliation until he knows that the attack is real. And so the main thing we want to do here is to give the president more decision time and in fact, take away the options that allow for quick decisions and quick launch, because that is how we will blunder into nuclear war and start nuclear war by mistake. Jim, I want to remind you and your listeners that when we first built our long-range missiles or ICBMs, we put them in silos. And the reason we put them in silos is that we wanted to protect them from a surprise attack. And back when we were building those missiles in those silos, the silos did protect them from an attack because an attacker had to make a direct hit on the silo in, either take, in order to take the missiles. The silos have built lots of concrete and steel. They're very difficult to destroy. And for many decades, our missile, our missiles were invulnerable in the silos. But technology moves on. What's happened since then is that both first United States and then Russia developed the guidance, the technology, the given guidance systems that are so accurate that they can destroy the silos, even though they have all this concrete still. So what was originally an invulnerable basing of the si in the silos now has become a highly vulnerable basing. In effect, our ICBMs are sitting ducks waiting to be shot down. Though I think it, just to be fair, it is true that, as I recall, one of the New START provisions is we got rid of the MIRVs, which really made the game theory of use it or lose it high stakes. So with only single warheads on the missiles, they're unlikely to be able to take all of our ICBMs out. Well, our, our point here is that it, it doesn't really matter. Um, we don't need ICBMs for deterrence because we have weapons on invulnerable submarines based at sea. Um, and so we don't need ICBMs for deterrence. And all they do for us, frankly, is create this false alarm, stumble into nuclear war danger. So one of the recommendations we make in the book is that we should get rid of our ICBMs. We should retire them. Uh, we don't need them at all. We don't need them for deterrence because the subs are out there and they create the false alarm danger that we'd be safer without. Yep. Let's talk a little bit about the history of the issue. In your book, you guys state that both Reagan and Carter remained ambiguous about whether their policy was launch on warning, hinting that it probably wasn't, but they believed that the strategic ambiguity was useful. We then get to Bush and Obama, and they both talked about 
that it was morally wrong to be at launch on warning. And yet once they got in office, neither of them actually took the missiles off alert. Could you say a little bit about the history and again, the dynamics on why we're still here where we are 40 years after the end of the Cold War? I think a lot of it goes down to this back to this paradox that I was talking about, which is that presidents want the flexibility to threaten to use nuclear weapons first, but they don't actually want to do it. Um, there's this there's this old phrase that the United States uses all the time, which are all options are on the table, right? If someone ever says, "Well, how might the United States respond militarily in this situation?" The response is, "All options are on the table," and that is a veiled nuclear threat. What that's saying is we might use nuclear weapons without using those exact words. And if you have a no first use policy, all of a sudden your threat to use nuclear weapons first uh, is less credible. But the argument I would make is that a, a US threat to use nuclear weapons first is already not credible. Uh, we haven't done it in 75 years. No rational president would do it. Uh, you would either invite nuclear retaliation against the United States or make the United States into a nuclear pariah attacking a non-nuclear state. It's just a step that no president would do. Uh, and so it's time for a president to sort of cash in the benefits of announcing a no first use policy, which in, in our view would be reducing the chances of blundering into nuclear war. Because we think that the Russians... Uh, do believe that the United States could launch a surprise attack against them. And therefore, they're on the hair trigger uh, in a way that makes it much more dangerous for us because there could be a mistaken launch from Russia uh, because of their hair trigger status. So both sides would be safer if we moved away from first use. Uh, and we certainly don't see any realistic prospect that the United States would ever benefit from a first use. Jim, I want to add, I want to, add to that that even if a president sees some benefit to these policies, he has to consider, what am I paying for? What's the loss? What's the, what's the risk in these policies? And the point of our book is to convince him that the risk is that it increases the likelihood of an accidental war. It increases the likelihood you're going to blunder into a nuclear war. And we think that is the more likely consideration and that he has to have that in mind. Whatever benefits he thinks he's getting, from not going to no first use, what are the benefits he thinks he's getting from having our missiles on a, on a quick launch and, uh, and allowing the launch on warning to proceed? There's a cost to that, and the cost is an increased risk of blundering into a nuclear war. And that, to me, is the real danger we're facing in the world today. And that's a perfect time, because I was about to move into your chapter titled Blundering into Nuclear War. It was hair-raising. You opened it up with a description of the Hawaiian false alarm that we recently had. Could one of you guys to run that through for our audience? Tom, why don't you do the Hawaiian, and then I'll follow up with my own experience with false alarms. Sure. Uh, you know, having talked to people who actually lived through this in Hawaii, it was quite terrifying. Um, it was an otherwise beautiful day in an otherwise beautiful place uh, on Hawaii. And then people started getting these text messages on their cell phones uh, saying that there was an incoming missile strike. And this was right at a time when people were very concerned uh, that North Korea might attack the United States. This was, this was at the time of fire and fury where President Trump 
uh, was exchanging uh, sort of escalatory words with uh, Kim Jong-un from North Korea about whose nuclear button was bigger. And it was a scary time. And it was right in the middle of that, that this uh, false alarm came through in Hawaii, where people really thought that they were um, uh, about to get attacked with nuclear weapons. And so they, for you know, a good part of an hour, scurried around trying to find their loved ones and trying to find shelter until it was finally declared that it was a false alarm. Um, and so the main point here is that false alarms are real. Uh, they do happen. Luckily, that was not a false alarm situation that went to the central command or to the president of the United States, uh, but it could have. And so the question is, if you have a false alarm that actually goes to the president, uh, what does the president do? And it's our deep concern that the president would respond inappropriately uh, and blunder into nuclear war because of the quick launch capabilities that we give the president and still do today. And Jim, I think the Hawaiian incident served as a good wake-up call to people to remind people that there is a danger in our launch on warning policies. I didn't need that wake-up call. To me, launch on warning has never been a theoretical problem. When I was years ago, decades ago, during the Cold War, when I was the Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering, I was actually awoken by a phone call at three o'clock in the morning from the watch officer to North American Air Defense Command. And the first thing the general said to me was his computers were showing 200 ICBMs on the way from the Soviet Union to the United States. You never forget a phone call like that. Now he quickly, happily, he quickly went on to add, he had concluded it was a false alarm. And he was calling me as the technical man in the Pentagon, see if I could help him figure out what had gone wrong with his computers. So that was, that, that was a, a very clear, indelible impression on my mind of the danger of launch on warning because of the possibility of false alarm. We have had a total of between ourselves and Russia, five false alarms that I'm aware of. We're going to have other false alarms. They, they happen because of human error. They happen because of machine error. Humans do error and machines do error. So it's going to happen again. And the question is, what do we do about it? And the answer in our mind is we get away from this quick launch, this launch on warning possibly, which could lead us all into a, a, a nuclear disaster. Absolutely. Though, of course, again, to be fair and honest, we would not have launched on warning in the Hawaiian case because it was just thought to be the North Koreans and probably two or three missiles. And we know we can absorb that hit and still knock the shit out of them if we have to. Jim, I just want to say the only reason for bringing up the Hawaiian is not because that was a real danger of a false of a, of a launch. Just just to remind people the, the false alarms can happen. Indeed. And I, I understood that. I was just clarifying the point that the two issues of false alarm and launch on warning, while related in that particular case, weren't linked. Now, as you go into this section of your book, you basically divide the categories of errors that could lead to blundering into nuclear war into three categories. One, well, actually, why don't you guys talk about the three categories? Hell, it's your book. You can do a better job than I can, I'm sure. Well, first of all, we can have a false, we can have a mistaken launch, an accidental launch in response to a false alarm. We've already talked about that at some length. You can also have a nuclear war, so a blunder in a nuclear war by a political miscalculation. The poster child, in my mind, for, politi for a political miscalculation 
is the Cuban Missile Crisis, where neither President Kennedy nor President Khrushchev wanted to start a war. We're doing everything they could to prevent a nuclear war, but we almost plundered into one because of bad information that the president had. Um, lack of information in, in, in the first case, but, but what in some of the information he had was actually bad. For example, well, after the crisis, President Kennedy said that he thought, he thought there was about one chance in three that the, the Cuban Missile Crisis would result in a nuclear catastrophe. One chance in three where the outcome would be basically the destruction of our civilization. But when he said that, he wasn't even aware of the fact that besides the medium-range missiles that the Russians had deployed in Cuba, not yet operational, they also had tactical nuclear weapons in Cuba that were operational and ready to go with the warheads. And so if Kennedy had accepted the unanimous recommendation of his Joint Chiefs of Staff for a military attack on Cuba, a conventional military attack on Cuba, our troops would have met on the beachhead, would have decimated on the beachhead with the nuclear weapons, and a general nuclear war would surely have followed. So this, in my mind, is an example of how you can blunder into a war through a political miscalculation, in this case, mainly through bad information. And then beyond that, we've discussed this very briefly, there's a possibility of the lapse of rationality on the part of the president. Tom's already mentioned the case, historical cases, which give us some concern about that. And the most dramatic one being the last few months of Nixon's presidency, who was very heavily drinking, sometimes at the point of being not fully competent. Now, at that time, the then Secretary of Defense, Jim Schlesinger, was so concerned, was so concerned about the possibility that Nixon might do something crazy, that he called the General of the Strategic Air Command and told him, do not take any action if you get a launch order from the president. Check with me first. Well, it's one thing for him to say that. I reflect how concerned he was. But in fact, he had no legal authority for doing that. And there's no reason to believe that the general would have followed his, his guidance. The general would undoubtedly instead take instructions from the president. Yep. And we have a situation like that today. At least we may well have. And it highlights these risks that we're talking about. So you had a recap for the audience, basically three categories. You have incomplete information, like in the Cuban case. You could have an unstable or even insane president. Or you could have the, what we talked about earlier, you know, cyber attacks, failed 46-cent chips, et cetera, that are providing false information. And, you know, all three of those are ways that, you know, if the signal were dire enough, we actually literally could stumble into a full-fledged nuclear war, at least so long as we have launch on warning as our policy at any time. That's exactly what we're concerned about. Jim, if I could just add to that, you know, it, it, it doesn't have to be that a president is not capable all of the time. It's just that a president might not be up to the job for one five-minute period out of their entire four years in office, right? Because you never know when this alarm will happen, when there could be a false alarm. The president would have five minutes to figure out what to do. And it's that five minutes that concerns us, right? Is the president in a bad mood during that five minutes? Has the president been drinking uh, during that five minutes? You know, that's in a crucial five minutes and you want him in. And so that's part of what underlies our uh, working assumption here that that no president, uh, I don't care which one it is from history, no matter how great they were, no president can be counted on to make that kind of decision at any moment at any time. 
And it's just too much responsibility to put on one fallible human being. And there's certainly no reason why we still do it. We simply don't understand it. And just to add to the historical uh, case, you know, we tend to think that presidents have perfect information, um, that they always have the up-to-date information and know what's going on. But of course, you know, as, as Bill talked about in the case of the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, it's simply not true. And another story I would just add here, which I just only discovered in the course of writing the book, was when President uh, Truman was considering using nuclear weapons um, against Japan, uh, the historical record uh, certainly strongly implies that he didn't fully understand that Hiroshima was a city and not just, and in his mind, might have been a military base. He didn't understand the amount of civilians that were involved and therefore uh, that actually most of the casualties of Hiroshima would be civilian um, and not military. So we have a number of examples where presidents are grossly misinformed. Um, and is that the kind of situation uh, that we want to put a president into to make a decision of that magnitude on such short notice? Let that be a warning to us all, right? Before we turn to what we should do in some detail, let's update the current state of play in things nuclear. You know, in your book, you call out the fact that one big decision that was made in the early part of the century was us withdrawing from the ABM Treaty. You know, we say it's for defense against North Korea or Iran, and the Russians assume the worst. What's been the result of that with respect to the nuclear posture of the U.S. and Russia? Well, Jim, great point. Um, you know, the ABM Treaty, just so the listeners understand, was negotiated uh, by the Nixon administration uh, way back in 1972 with Russia. And it basically said that neither country uh, would deploy a nationwide defense against nuclear attack. Now, that sounds to most people to be counterintuitive, right? Why would you uh, prohibit yourself from deploying uh, a defense? Well, the reason is, is that at the time, and I would argue uh, still today, we don't have the technology to make a missile defense effective. Now, you can still deploy one, and in fact, the United States has uh, deployed missile defenses, but that doesn't mean they're going to work. Um, and what happens is, certainly in the Russian case, the way that the Russians respond is that they will leave themselves enough margin to have enough offensive missiles to overwhelm any defenses we deploy. And so what this has done is created a floor uh, below which the Russians simply are much more resistant to reduce their nuclear forces. So we are in a situation now where Russia is resisting reducing nuclear weapons that pose a real uh, and present danger to the United States because we've deployed missile defenses that in our view don't work and wouldn't be effective against that threat. And the reason we did this is, is politics, right? It's very hard to org argue with the American people, we shall remain defenseless, we shall not build missile defenses. Uh, but the reality is that that's what we should do because the technology doesn't work. And by deploying them, we've only increased the nuclear forces uh, aimed against us, or I should say, prevented Russia from going as far as they might otherwise go with nuclear reductions. Jim, I want to elaborate on one point here. Ballistic missile defense systems do work in the sense that if a missile was fired at the United States, we can have a missile defense interceptor go after it and have a good chance of hitting it. 
But that's assuming a single warhead. But our system or any such system can be saturated. You have more than one, maybe five or 10 or 100. And we have no possibility of defending against a, a mass attack like that. And to further elaborate that, even in a country like North Korea, which does not have that many missiles to attack us with, they can put decoys up as well. And the system we have is vulnerable to decoys. So launching, if North Korea, say, could launch five or 10 missiles at it, it would look to the, it could look to the defense system like 500 or 1,000. And so any defense system can be saturated. And this system is particularly susceptible to saturation because it's so easy and simple to build realistic-looking decoys for an intercept that's going to occur in outer space, which is where our system works. Sorry about getting into a little bit of technical detail on that, but it's important to understand that it's not just that our system wasn't designed right, it's just every system of that sort is capable of being saturated, being defeated by being saturated. And it's very easy to saturate it with, with putting decoys along with your missiles. Yep, and I love you make that point. I mean, I, as a you know, civilian nuclear hobbyist in the 1980s, did a little bit of math and realized that mid-course ABM could never work for exactly that reason. You know, in space where there's no air drag to separate a heavy warhead from a, you know, a light mylar balloon, they both move at the same speed, the opportunity to out-decoy is always going to dominate the ability to knock down missiles in the mid-course. I mean, at launch, you have a chance to take them out, and terminally, you have a chance to take them out. But I'm frankly amazed that a bunch of smart folks who made the decision to proceed with mid-course interception didn't do the simple math and realize that it was an impossible project. That's the fundamental point. And I would elaborate on that point by saying that the, the tactical missile defense systems we have, which defend our troops in the theater, operate at the terminal end of the incident where that's no longer, no longer true. So we do have effective missile defense systems in the tactical field. But as long as our strategic systems, the ones that defend against the ICBM attack, as long as they're designed to operate in, in outer space, they will be highly susceptible to decoys for the reason you describe. Yep. Yeah, well, terminal defense is at least theoretically possible. We had the, what was it, the Sprint system at one point that was a terminal defense system. I don't know whatever became of that. My calculations in 1985 said that's at least possible, unlike the mid-course, which is just a fool's errand. And yet, nonetheless, how many billions of dollars did we spend on it? Oh, shitload, uh, as far as I can recall. Let's see, moving on to other current events before we turn to what to do about it. The Russians seem to be rather blatantly violating the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, the INF Treaty, so-called. And they've also, oddly, I don't know what this is about, have been violating the Open Skies Treaty and has basically pushed the U.S. to withdraw from open skies. What are the Russians up to? Why are they doing this? And what does it mean for our strategic posture? The Russians have been bad actors in many respects. I think even more importantly is, is their bad actions in, in Ukraine. But on the other hand, the Russians also have 4,000 nuclear weapons, of which 1,550 are deployed, and presumably most of them deployed against us. So we have, they're the only country in the world, as one of their commentators once said on t Russian television, they can turn the United States into radioactive ash. So that's a reality. We have to deal with the Russians. Uh, the, the reason it's so hard to deal with them is because their actions are so bad in other fields. So the 
the only solution I can see to that problem is we have to be able to separate out those two variables. We have to separate out the bad actions in one field from the, the strategic nuclear field where we have common interests, the common interest not to have a nuclear war, not to have nuclear proliferation, not to have nuclear terrorism. So we have many reasons that we can deal with them and should be dealing with them in the nuclear field if we can only get that decoupled from the bad, the bad behavior in other fields, which we rightly abhor. Of course, the INF violations are coupled to the nuclear posture and that they threaten our core allies in Europe. And as at least as I understand it, these are not marginal violations. You know, these are hundreds of weapons that are clearly in violation. What's that all about? Why is he doing this? I don't know why he's doing it, but I can tell you that our response to that, which is we're going to build the same weapons, is not a good response either for Russia or for the United States. We need to find a way of getting back to the Russians on this narrow issue and get it resolved before we make the world worse off by the absence of an INF treaty. The INF treaty was probably the best nuclear treaty we in Russia, and in those cases, the Soviet Union originally, ever agreed to. And giving that up was a big mistake. So whatever they're doing in that field, whatever the motivation of doing it, for doing that, we need to find a way of getting back and discussing and debating this with them and see if we can find a way of getting this situation in. Because it's a bad result, both for Russia and the United States. And therefore, that gives us a basis, I think, for negotiating in a way. Yeah, I would hope so, because, you know, at least it seems to me, unless we can get past this INF issue, doesn't seem to be any hope for renegotiating the New START Treaty, which what it expires next year, I believe. And that's been a cornerstone of our nuclear, you know, strategic nuclear arms control. Could you talk a little bit about where New START is and what do you think is going to happen? Well, on, on New START, I mean, it, the good news is that the INF fallout uh, has not infected the New START situation quite so much. There's been no evidence of Russian cheating uh, or U.S. cheating, for that matter, on New START. So, you know, that's all to the good. But the New START treaty expires uh, next February, uh, and it can be extended unconditionally for about up to five years. And so we strongly support uh, that the Trump administration should work with Russia to extend New START uh, for up to five years unconditionally. And that could be done right now uh, because Russia has been very clear that they support the unconditional extension of the treaty. Unfortunately, the Trump administration has been dragging its heels and has been not willing uh, to support a, a unconditional extension. And in fact, has been putting conditions, I would say unrealistic conditions on the extension. Uh, first, you know, they wanted China to be part uh, of, of any uh, follow-on treaty or extension. Uh, China has basically said no to that because they have so much fewer nuclear weapons than the United States and Russia, uh, about one-tenth or fewer nuclear weapons than, than we do. That They made the argument that you know it's just not realistic for China to be involved in this point. Uh, and the Trump administration seems to have accepted that point, but the Trump administration is still asking for changes to the new START treaty in terms of the weapons it covers um, or the inspection procedures. Now, you simply can't extend new START and change it at the same time. If you change the treaty, then you have to go back to the Senate um, and get a new ratification, which we don't want to have to do. So the simple thing to do here is to extend new START without any changes, a clean extension, as they say, for up to five years. And then once you have that, go try to negotiate, which we fully support, a follow-on treaty 
that could have better verification. Uh, it could go after a wider range of nuclear weapons, for example, shorter range nuclear weapons that both the United States and Russia have that are not captured by the current treaty. Uh, we support that too. And eventually to talk with China, uh, although again, their numbers are so so much smaller that it's not clear that they have an incentive to get involved at this point. But the key thing is that either the Trump administration or if, if Vice President Biden wins the election in November, uh, the Biden administration moved very quickly to extend New START so we maintain limitations on long-range nuclear weapons and then move to negotiate a new follow-on agreement. If we move forward the way Tom describes, uh, there is a way of dealing with the China issue, which is we could invite China to sit in as an observer to the new, to the new START follow-on treaty talks. And then at such time as we get closer to them in the number of nuclear weapons, then they can ease in to become regular part of the negotiation. But being part of the negotiation today makes no sense. and makes no sense even for the next few years. But we should be able to have them sitting in as observers. So if we reach a stage where their missiles get large enough or our missiles get small enough that it makes sense, then they'd be able to move right into the talks with us. Okay. Well, I think we have set the stage of where we are today, and you guys have hinted at some of the solutions. Let's get down to it. What should we do as a country to address these various risks that are lurking out there and which, frankly, most of us aren't even aware that we're at risk about? What should we do? Well, I'll, uh, Jim, I'll kick it off, and I'm sure uh, Bill will, will follow on. Uh, you know, I think our highest recommendation is that we should increase the amount of time that a president has to make a launch decision, uh, that we're in real danger of rushing the president into a decision uh, that could be in response to a false alarm that will lead us to blunder into a nuclear war that is the highest potential danger that we see to the United States right now. Uh, we don't see a, a great danger of an intentional nuclear war because that would be suicidal for both the United States and Russia. But we do see a great danger in, in stumbling, bumbling into nuclear war by mistake. So there's three key things that we would like to see happen to increase the amount of time that a president has. Uh, one is that we should um, prohibit sole authority. So the president should not be able to make a decision all by himself without input from anyone else, including Congress or even the Secretary of Defense. Uh, the president should not be able to make a decision uh, on his own authority to launch nuclear weapons. Uh, two, the president should not be able to launch first uh, on sole authority, right? So there should no be there should be no first use or prohibition against the first use of nuclear weapons. That again would slow down the process and also help reassure Russia that we're not going to attack them out of the blue. And it would be nice if Russia responded to that, reciprocated in some way. Uh, but even if they don't, we would be safer for it. And third, you know, the way to make a no first use policy more credible is to retire the weapons that we would use in a first launch situation. And to us, the, the first weapons that a president would reach to, uh, particularly in a false alarm scenario, would be the land-based ballistic missiles because they're vulnerable uh, to first strike. They're vulnerable to being destroyed quickly. So, and as we've said before, we don't need those weapons for deterrence. We have submarine weapons that can do that. Uh, so we would seek to uh, retire the land-based 
ballistic missiles. And now is a great time to have that conversation because the Air Force just last week agreed to a contract with Northrop Grumman, which is a down payment on a new uh, generation of land-based ballistic missiles. These missiles will cost the taxpayer uh, upwards of $100 billion. Uh, and that is money we would much rather see spent on higher priority threats to the United States, for example, solving uh, the coronavirus or addressing climate change uh, or fixing racial injustice. These are the things that our nation should be worried about, uh, and we shouldn't be spending that money on weapons that we don't need. All right. A good, concise statement. Now, how do we do them? Let's think about the details. How do we go from sole authority to some kind of multi-key authority as I understand it, at least the Soviets, I don't know if it's still the Russian doctrine, but the Soviets had some kind of three-key system, didn't they? Something like that, Bill? Yes, they did. They had it both tactically and strategically. For example, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, they, the Soviets had submarines uh, out patrolling the area, and their submarines had, unknown to us, their submarines had nuclear torpedoes. And they had a three-key system before they could be launched. It's a damn good thing they did because that's one of those submarines came under attack or thought it was under attack from one of our destroyers. And he was getting ready to torpedo that destroyer. The skipper was, but he could not get the other two to agree with him. That would surely have caused a, a general nuclear war. And so we just missed that one by a hair. So they had this three-key system then for the tactical system, maybe still today. And they also had a, a three-key system for their strategic weapons. We understand that today, although it's hard to be certain about this, but we understand that they have abandoned that for the strategic weapons, and that now President Putin has the sole authority, just as President Trump does in the United States. Yeah, he's nasty, but at least he's not crazy, right? At least we don't think so. So let's say we went with a three-key strategic system in the United States. Who would be plausible additional signers that would be required. And, you know, of course, wonderfully today, we have lots of very advanced multi-key cryptography where we could literally make it impossible for anybody to forge these signatures. Uh, what are the other two signatures that you think we should add to the president to launch? I think for it to make any sense, Jim, it has to be from the, uh, from the Congress, that it has to be somebody representing the Congress, not somebody that works for reports to the president, but somebody in a different branch of government. And you could do it in various ways. You could have the two leaders of the Congress. You want to be bipartisan, so that takes it up to four. So the minimum would be the House Majority Leader, the leading Democrat in the House, leading in the Senate, leading Republican in the House, leading Republican in the Senate. So that would be the minimum would be four people. And those people then could have to sign off along with that. We would have, so we would have a five-key system because of our two-party system instead of a three-key system. Okay. And that by itself, of course, would slow things down quite a bit. Of course it would. And, and that's a reason you're often given for not doing it. Where to me, that's an, that's an advantage of it. One thing we want to do, whoever makes the decision, we want to slow it down. We do not want a quick decision about ending the world as we know it. Let's think about, let's think about that a little bit. Let's spend a little time. Let's do a little consultation. Let's do a little analysis before we finally decide we're going to take an action. It'll be the end of our civilization. I want to emphasize that's not being melodramatic. If we would, if, if we and Russia would exchange only ten percent of our deployed nuclear weapons, the result would be hundreds of millions of deaths, and the result would be a destruction of our infrastructure and their infrastructure, 
and quite possibly because of all the smoke and soot that is generated by all these things burning, we're going to have an obscuration of the sun for some period of time. It could be long enough to cause what's called nuclear winter, which is the destruction of all of our crops for for years on end. In other words, what could happen here would be approximately what happened 66 million years ago when an asteroid hit the Earth, killed many of the animals instantly. But the reason that we had a mass extinction, the reason all the dinosaurs died, for example, was because of the smoke and soot that got up in the air, worked their way into this, its way into the stratosphere, circled the planet, and, and eventually cut off the sun long enough to kill most of the vegetation on Earth. Yep. Yeah, certainly. Uh, you know, I always figured the number was around 300. We want to keep the total number of nukes on Earth well below 300 so that we don't stumble into those kinds of scenarios. And we're a long way from there, unfortunately, right? So a five-key system, I could see that being useful. Do we need to eliminate the ICBMs under that scenario? Because there's no first launch capability. There's no insane or drunk president problem. It would certainly take more than six minutes for the five people to decide. Do we still need to eliminate the ICBMs? And if so, why? Because they are an attractive nuisance. And they are so powerful and so vulnerable that they just invite an attack. They're sitting ducks. And for that reason alone, I think we ought to get rid of them. Whatever deterrence capability we think we need, however many nuclear weapons we think ought to be in, the, in, a, in our inventory, in our arsenal, ought to be deployed on submarines and on bombers, not on ICBMs. Of course, there is the so-called sponge theory, which says, oh, yeah, they're kind of vulnerable, but they'll suck up and basically just blow up a bunch of empty corners of Wyoming and North Dakota, any nuclear weapons targeted the United States. So for that reason alone, having even a very, very vulnerable ICBM force has strategic value. Well, you know, Jim, I think the the sponge theory, as you lay out, really doesn't make any sense, right? I mean, why would we want to draw a nuclear attack to the United States? Uh, and you know, the Upper Midwest has has really good people, and I hate to put a, a nuclear target on their backs, particularly when you realize that you know, if there were a nuclear attack against the Midwest, that would not expend all of the nuclear weapons that Russia has. Russia could attack the Midwest as well as the coasts. Uh, they don't have to make a choice in that regard. Uh, and so the sponge theory, you know, I think it doesn't hold up to a simple analysis, which said if we didn't have the ICBMs at all, would we be worse off? And the answer is no. You know, if we didn't have the ICBMs, uh, Russia or another country would still be deterred because we have invulnerable weapons deployed on submarines at sea. And they can't attack those weapons if they're deployed at sea. So they simply would not attack us at all, which is exactly what we want. And so having some sort of nuclear sponge or nuclear sink out in the Midwest, uh, to me, doesn't make any sense. It unnecessarily draws a nuclear attack to the United States, uh, which to me is, is incredibly counterintuitive, and justifies land-based ballistic missiles, which we don't need. And as we see now, are going to cost us $100 billion to replace. And from a you know game theory perspective, can we do it unless the Russians do it too? If we both did it, yeah, I could see how it makes sense. But if the Russians still have all their ICBMs, and now they can retarget those that were headed for the missile fields and put them on our industrial centers and population centers instead, you know, they now have a quite significant advantage. I think 
Jim, the idea of an advantage is misleading. The Russians have enough nuclear weapons, and we have enough nuclear weapons, that we don't have to choose. Uh, in the scenario I mentioned to you a, a while back, where each side uses 10% of the nuclear forces, that's enough to destroy both countries. So we have so many nuclear weapons, so many nuclear weapons, that the idea of advantage doesn't make any sense. The overkill is more than submerged in the quantities of nuclear weapons we have and the destructive power that they have. Okay. Yeah. It's probably true. Let's go down to the next argument traditionally for keeping the ICBMs, which is the so-called triad theory, that we can't be sure of the future. We think our subs are undetectable. Maybe they are today, but suppose somebody develops an efficient neutrino detector or something, and suddenly the subs are blazing red on the screen from you know an orbiting satellite. Is it really prudent to put all of our eggs in basically one basket? You know, Jim, back in the 1970s, when I was the Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering, we worried a lot about that argument. And, and in those days, the thing we were worried about was not neutrinos, but uh, blue-green lasers in satellites detecting them. There's always been some theory about how we're going to detect submarines at sea. And basically what it comes down to, it's been a major countermeasure approach that technology is developing new ways of attacking submarines, our technology is developing new ways of defending submarines. So it's been back and forth. But over that 40-year period that I'm describing, the submarines have always had the advantage, and I believe they will continue in the future. We cannot relax and say submarines can never be attacked. We have to continue to put a, a major part of our emphasis, a major part of our defense emphasis on protecting the invulnerability of our submarines. And I think it, it becomes a technological battle, and I think the United States is in a pretty good position to win that technological back and forth. Yeah. I mean, in, in addition to a, a healthy R&D program that Bill described, we also have an insurance policy, uh, which is nuclear armed bombers. Uh, so if the subs ever did, uh, you know, if a problem did develop with the subs, uh, we have the bombers that can be deployed. And so the ICBMs come an insurance policy on an insurance policy uh, and a very expensive insurance policy at that and one that increases the danger of accidental war. So I think when you put all that together, uh, it breaks, makes a pretty compelling case that, that we don't need them. Tim, Jim, I would add to that, that if we're going to get rid of our ICBMs, putting all that weight on something, not only do we have to have a robust, robust technological program in, it, in, the, in the field of anti-submarine warfare, but we probably want to put our bombers on, on um, air alert because if they're sitting in the bases, they're, they're as vulnerable as the ICBMs are. So the disadvantages of an airborne alert, which is why we don't do it, but we did it for a good many years during the Cold War, so it can be done. Yep, that was the old having a couple of wings of them up in the air at all times. I remember those days. Uh, they're not good days, and I hope we never have to go back to that, but they, they can be done. Yep. Okay, I think you guys have answered the objections, and so let's therefore so order it. Boom. All right. Let's hope for the next president is a sane and reasonable person and reads the book and decides to do these things. All right. This gets us so far, but it doesn't really get us to where we need to be. The real answer to me seems to be to get rid of these damn things, or at least to build them down to a level, you know, maybe a hundred worldwide, something like that. They're not an existential threat to our advanced civilization, because no matter how careful we are, 
you know, think July 1914. Nobody wanted to go through what they went through, and yet they stumbled into it anyway. Remember January 1861, if anybody had any idea that we were about to kill the equivalent of six million contemporary Americans, the path of history would have been very different. So how do we really do what Gorbachev and Reagan talked about doing, which is to you know, either get rid of the nukes or get them down to a level where they're not an existential threat to advanced civilization. You know, one of the persons that were that Reagan and Gorbachev at Reykjavik was George Shultz, who was Secretary of State at the time. And twenty year on the twenty year anniversary of the Reykjavik, he convened a small group of us to say, "Isn't it time to revisit the idea of just getting rid of the damn things?" And we agreed. And the four of us wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal proposing just that, citing the nuclear dangers and proposing that we abolish nuclear weapons. And for about four or five years, we had a pretty good run in that, including President Obama when he was elected, stating in his first foreign policy address on made in Prague right after, just a few months after he took office, that he was committing the United States to seek the peace and security of the world without nuclear weapons. Well, he failed on that, and he failed, I think, because the, the, he could not get support for Congress. He almost couldn't get the New START Treaty ratified by the Congress. And he just decided he was going to give up. It wasn't worth the effort. Well, my view on that is that that is the solution of the problem. We tried very hard, Schultz and Kissinger and none of myself, to try to promote that. And after a few years, finally gave that up. But I think we cannot give up altogether. And so I backed off thinking we cannot do that now. What can we do now? What we can do now is take reasonable, sensible steps to decrease the danger, the risk that are associated with nuclear weapons, to make it less likely that we'll blunder into a nuclear war. And that's what we're promoting now. I'm not giving up and do not give up the idea of eventually being able to abolish nuclear weapons. But I'm putting my efforts now on the thing where I have a chance for political success that is, can actually be implemented, and that are these particular proposals to take actions that reduce the danger of our nuclear weapons. Tom, what do you want to add to that? Well, I, I would, I would just add that there is a, there is a hopeful uh, development happening internationally, uh, which is that there is a new treaty that was approved a few years ago by the United Nations, uh, which would prohibit nuclear weapons uh, and make them illegal under international law. And this is the same approach that the world has taken to uh, chemical weapons. Uh, which are prohibited internationally, and biological weapons. And those are the other weapons of mass destruction. And if we take the same approach to nuclear weapons, uh, prohibit them internationally, and my guess is that treaty will go into force uh, probably sometime next year, then that increases the international pressure on the states that have nuclear weapons um, to get rid of them. Now, this will not be a quick process. None of the states that have nuclear weapons uh, have signed on to the Nuclear Weapons Prohibition Treaty, but it's, it's a start. And again, it's it's how the other weapons of mass destruction uh, were ultimately banned. Um, and I think it's a it's a promising direction. I don't, I, Jim, I entirely agree with what Tom has just said, but I would point out it's going to be a long process. I don't know how long, five years, 10 years, a long process. In the meantime, we should do everything we can to lower the risk of blundering into a nuclear war. And that's what this book is about. 
Well, thank you, gentlemen, for an incredibly interesting and stimulating conversation. You know, to recap for the listeners, the proposals, correct me if I'm wrong, are basically to do the following. One is to eliminate first use by the United States, presumably by legislation. Two is to go to a five-key system, approximately, where it would take five key decision makers to be able to launch a weapon. It would have to be cryptologically secure so that, indeed, all five would actually have to do so. Eliminate the ICBMs because their asymmetry about risk versus power makes them attractors for drawing fire. Up the R&D on sub-defense and anti-submarine warfare, and perhaps put our strategic bombers, at least in part, back on air alert. Is that the proposal, gentlemen? Uh, the proposal on, on the air alert is only in the, in the contingent that that needed, and only after the ICBMs are gone. Okay, let's make that clear. All righty, any final thoughts, or we can wrap her up. Thank you very much. It's been a great conversation. Thank you, Jim. You did your homework. You had all the right questions, and we did our best to give you the, the, the right answers. And you guys did a great job. And this is you know, particularly meaningful for me right now. My wife and I have become first-time grandparents just recently. Congratulations. In the last six weeks. And damn it, wouldn't it be nice if that beautiful little girl didn't have to grow up with a bomb over her head? It would be. Production services and audio editing by Jared Janes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.